it was beautiful. I had my stars at night and it was warm. But at the same time, I was just starting to deal with the fact that, you know, I'd spent every penny that I had. The trip was definitely not going to go according to plan. And I didn't know what to do at that point. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Uh, man, today's episode, one of the very, very rare chances we get to actually talk to one of the guests in person. Uh, and if you know the name, you know Jerome Rand. He was on the show back at episode 644 about his nonstop nine-month sail around the solo sail around the world. Literally sailed for for nine, almost 10 months, clear around the world, never saw anybody, all by himself, one of like six people to ever do that. Unbelievable story. Well, I had the chance a couple months ago to sit down and talk with Jerome. He was really close, like 20 minutes from my house, had to take the opportunity. We sat down and had about a two and a half hour conversation, and we're going to break that episode up or that interview up into two different episodes. Today's going to be part one. Um, and because it's in person, there's a totally different dynamic than you're used to. It's not just cut and dry interview. It's so much more conversational. There's visual cues. There's body language. There's you just you're more engaged. It's it's totally different vibe. And I, every time I get the chance to do this with a guest, it's so much fun. So um, it and it typically goes a little longer because you know there's so much more you want to talk about and you have time for it. So um, this episode was awesome. It is it's about his most recent attempt at the Northwest Passage of basically doing a figure eight of the planet around the two um, two large ice caps, uh, two large, you know, poles, essentially. A pretty ridiculous adventure when he d- describes it, but pretty incredible. Um, and there's some amazing stories in this first part, but there's obviously a lot of amazing stories in the second part as well. Um, so it's a little bit different. We don't, you know, necessarily just follow... Um, any sort of line, but Jerome's such an amazing storyteller and has such a good voice that, uh, hey, I don't mind hearing him rant or just talk about things or just go on on a rabbit trail. Everything he says is interesting, so um, I really enjoyed the conversation. If you like what he's doing, definitely encourage you to check out Sailing Into Oblivion. He has a book out. Um, He has a YouTube channel. He has his own podcast, Sailing Into Oblivion. Um, and first time I think I've ever recommended this, he has a TikTok that's incredibly popular. He has like 50,000 followers on there, and he shares very short clips um, of life on the boat, life at sea. Uh, it, I, I've honestly been following him, and it's been a, a, just a neat way to visualize what he's doing. But obviously, the YouTube channel does that too really well. Um, but all that, follow him all there. All that is in the show notes. And before we get started, I do want to shout out uh, folks that are making this show happen. So our supporter is rerouted.co. You know Rerouted. We had their founder, Chap Grub, on the show. They are all about getting used gear into the hands of people that need that gear or getting used gear out of your closet and into the hands of someone that needs it. So whether you need to buy or sell, buy or sell, I got sailboats on the mind, buy or sell used gear, definitely check out rerouted.co because out there somebody needs that gear. And for the, for us to keep having stories on this show, people need the right gear. But unfortunately, you know, not not for unfortunately, for, for a lot of folks, it needs to be used because that's what they can afford and that's what they want to spend on. I know for me, half the things I own I got from from gear trades or gear sales or buying gear that's used helps make adventures possible. So rerouted, what rerouted is doing is incredible. So I definitely encourage you to check them out. All right, here's the episode. I'm recording now. Nice. We are live. Yeah. 
Jerome, welcome to the uh, Adventure Sports Podcast again. <laughs> Thank you, Mason. I could I could almost say welcome to the Sailing into Oblivion podcast. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we could just we could just exchange. Yeah, we can share this. It's we can dueling this. podcast interviewers interviewing yep. each other. You're even interviewing me. I'm interviewing you. Um, but yeah, man, what are, what are you doing in St. Pete right now? Well, just down here trying to spend a little time away from the cold, uh, up North and, and visit, uh, some family that lived down here. My, and my mom is down here on a little two week hiatus from, uh, that blistering cold up in Northern Michigan. So, oh my gosh. Now I can't, you, are you from Boston? Not Boston, but my Massachusetts dad, originally? Yeah. My dad's side of the family are all from Boston and then my mom's side are all from Indiana. So oh, wow. they met up and then Michigan was the place they went. So nice, man. Oh, wow. yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah. I, I've always, when we were kids, uh, we, my grandparents had a little house out in Gloucester and that was where, the whole Gloucester thing of leaving on the big trip came from, but yeah. they, I used to spend like all my days out there looking through the tide pools, trying to find crabs, all sorts of stuff. It was paradise as a, as a young man. Yeah. No kidding, <laughs> man. This is, I, and you know, if folks are going through some cold, cold weather right now, but it's a beautiful day here. Yeah, I you know I don't know if we should brag about it, but it is it's probably what seventy eight degrees oh, and man. Uh, yeah. sunny and it's perfect. It, it really I was driving in you know along the beach here in the water and it was dude it looked like my shirt. Yeah, I was like I feel like we're in the Caribbean, man. But you know more about that than I do. Uh, yeah, you live down there. I've been I've been pretty spoiled. Spent uh, about nine nine years down in the British Virgin Islands, and to be able to uh, wake up every day and look out at that was pretty spectacular and it, it it makes you know doing anything else hard because as a sailor down there the winds the trade winds just blow and blow and it's perfect and then i would go back to northern michigan for a month or so during hurricane season there's oh, a beautiful man. lake up there and zero wind oh, and I, every day I'd be like, oh, we can't even go sailing there's no wind jeez you got spoiled down there. I got definitely spoiled. I was very, very lucky. And that, honestly, the best part about being down there was the people. It's just such an amazing culture of just sort of family-oriented neighbors and know all the neighbors. And, you know, everybody's just trying to enjoy their time, Yeah, you know, here on the planet. Wow. A little more in the moment living, maybe? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I, I, you know, they, I think, and I've heard them say a lot, a lot of times it's just... We already live in paradise. We're just trying to enjoy it. Wow. Yeah. You know? What are you what are you trying to get to from there? Yeah, exactly. Life, you know? <laughs> exactly. So. That's cool, man. See, I mean, are you gonna try to get down there anytime soon? Or do you try to go back down? Or is that I just would, kinda I'd love to. They're still rebuilding the Bitter End Yacht Club where I used to work. Um, and that's I, I think they're gonna try to open up maybe maybe open up sometime either this summer. I'm not sure. I, I need to I need to chat with their ownership and see see what's going on and what the updates are. I don't know. I, I would love to go back down there. It's such a spectacular place, but I'd, I'd like to go down there on the boat too and just keep cruising. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where you can get sucked into it and then you never return. Right. Right. Yeah, Cause there's a lot of opportunities in the Caribbean as well. And you know, like, like what stuff, um, there's just all sorts of little jobs where you can get hooked into either, either, jobs on boats uh that are coming in for the season and then going to the med or actually living there and working at like one of the resorts and and things like that and i don't know it is it's it's pretty cool but it's it's party time down there as well you know that's that's one of the that's one of the tricky things some people get down there and they can't handle it it's there's too much freedom you can totally. pretty much do what you want and uh, I remember when I when I first did a delivery to St. Thomas this was back maybe 2004 or 5 and one of the guys who had spent a lot of time down there it was my first time he said listen man if you can stay sober until noon you're you're going to do all right down here <laughs> and I was like, I didn't really understand what he meant but now I I kind of do because it's just, uh, you know, everybody that's visiting down there is there for the party and it infects everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. How would you get out of that? Because you're trying to perpetuate that. You don't want to. Yeah. Exactly. You don't want to like cram someone's vacation time. So you got to kind of have to be. In yeah. You want to be like, hey, guys, let's, uh, yeah. let's get up tomorrow, 6 a.m. Let's do some calisthenics. What do you say? No, it's it's like, let's stay up late. Let's party. Let's dance. All that oh, sort of stuff. Man. But 
it is fun. And, you know, I, I, I spent the better part of my thirties down there and that was pretty perfect. I don't know if I could do it again, but I have a feeling I'll I'll end up down there at some point. It's a time. It's a time of your life. It's gone though for now, but where's your boat? Uh, right now Sparrow is up in South Carolina. So I typically go and I'll, if I'm not doing some big adventure, I'll end up, you know, in Maine in the summer where I work in the boat yard that I haul the boat out and then I can do the big repair jobs. And then right after the hurricane season, I'll head down either to the Caribbean or go. This is the second season I've been down in uh, Buford, South Carolina. Oh, nice. So How'd you end up there? Just a, a recommendation from a buddy of mine who had worked there. Is a, a small little marina way, like 25 miles up the river, quiet, um, really protected, which is what I sort of look for. There's a lot of marinas where if it's in the wrong position, you get the wrong wind coming out during the day. All of a sudden, you've got like two-foot waves bouncing you around on the on the dock and the place I'm at doesn't have any of that. It's perfect. Yeah. I've been to Buford once. Oh, really? I was bike touring up the East Coast. Oh, Let me okay. tell a story real fast. And I met this other cyclist. This dude, he was actually in a group. And we just started talking. I was I was bikepacking, just going up the coast. And telling him about what I was doing. And he's like, oh, you should totally come hang out at our house tonight. Mm-hmm. We, we're like, we're huge cyclists. We love, you know, visitors, whatnot. Yeah. And he's like, you know, I've got another like hour and a half for my ride with my group, but why don't you, he goes, we're only like five miles away. Why don't you just go ahead and go over there and hang out at my house? And he's like, my wife's not home yet. Um, and he was kind of like looking around like, uh, and he pulled out of his jersey. Like, here's just my keys. Yeah. Take, take, go get, go to my house, <laughs> hang out. You know, there's a TV. He just gave me the keys to his house. Wow. The code to his gate. I mean, it was a beautiful home right on the water. Oh, really? In coastal Buford. He's a doctor. Had this giant jersey signed by Lance Armstrong, like from the Tour de France on the wall. Oh, so like, he's he like was like a fanatic. Oh, he was. Yeah. He was a fanatic, but super wealthy. And yeah, just, yeah. I walked in and his dogs were there and I was like, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> So I just hung out on the back porch the whole time. I didn't feel right just right, sitting in his right. house. Yeah. And sure enough, like an hour later, he comes home and I just they just we just hang out, eat dinner, and go to bed, get up the next day, and ride away. But it was it was a cool experience. Southern hospitality yeah, is a very real thing. It, it, it was a really it was a beautiful place too. Yeah, beautiful yeah. place. Oh, there's there's some absolutely spectacular old mansions that are all oh, along. Yeah. And I I think the house from uh, that movie The Big Chill is down there. Yeah. And then I, I, I'm pretty sure the, the there's like the, a street in there. I think so. Yeah, gets rec- in a lot of films, they were talking about a street. I well, and remember. and the I I don't think the proper name for the bridge, the Ladies Island Bridge, uh, I think is one that's featured in Forrest Gump, and then yeah. also the bench, the bench he sits on. I think that's down. Oh in, yeah, in yeah. Okay, yeah. That that's ringing a bell now. It's right around. And there's all a that lot stuff. of little chocolate shops. You know, it's, there you go. It's sort of modeled around it. <laughs> That's and there's awesome. there's a shrimp company and stuff. There I had a go. buddy of mine who was working for him. I don't know. It's it's a really nice place. I mean, it's it's beautiful. But right now, at least for the last week before I got down here, it mm-hmm. was 40 degrees and it rained for I think five days straight. It was reminiscent of being in in Maine on the Appalachian Trail, actually. Just dang, like it won't stop. Why? Yeah. How is it still raining? <laughs> Dude, you, speaking of Forrest Gump, man, you're like a you're like a Forrest Gump on the water. You just <laughs> So it's um, I was just jumping sailing. all these. I, was, I just went sailing. I'm going sailing. <laughs> I'm done now. <laughs> I'm done. Now. Well, and you know, honestly, I I, I was talking with uh, the guys from the MS Foundation or the MS Society, and I, I raised money on this last trip. Uh, just to, I, I've got a buddy of mine, a good friend who was diagnosed when I was on my big trip around the world, yeah. and so when I got back. You know, I went to visit him, got the news, all that sort of stuff. And uh, long story short, I was chatting with him the other, yesterday and uh, it got me thinking and I want to do this this crazy trip. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, but I, I've always thought about that whole Forrest Gump thing about running across, you know, the country. Running but I, across I, don't, the country. I don't think I could just jump right into mm-hmm. anything like that. But I was thinking Michigan, you know, I could run from the border of Indiana and run all the way up to the Mackinac Bridge. It's like, if you take the coast road, it'd probably be 350, 400 miles. Oh, yeah. 
You think that would be pretty uh, That'd interesting? That'd be awesome. Do you think yeah. I could actually do it? That would be the question. Do I think you can do it? <laughs> what do you? This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. <laughs> yeah, man. well, there's true, just, true, yeah. There's nothing you really can't do. Might as well try it, <laughs> right, I suppose. Right, no, right? I, I think that's Three a cool weeks, idea. Something like that. Why, well, yeah. tell me this. Why would you want to? Well, I think I think it would help curb this this idea that I have that I want to run across the U.S. From uh, the idea would be to go from San Francisco to Boston, and in my crazy brain, I had the thinking of like, well, time it so that I get to Boston for the Boston Marathon. Oh man! And then I can run that, and who knows? Maybe I'll be in such good shape, I'll win it. Right there, you go. There you go. <laughs> you can see how my brain doesn't really. You know, it has these grand plans, and sometimes I have to damper them down. But boy, if I well, you've done a lot of this stuff too. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. You know well, I mean? the the AT. I mean, that was obviously I'm not running, but you're still putting down twenty to thirty miles in a day. You're carrying thirty pounds on your back. All that getting stuff. rained on day oh, after day. Yeah, it's yeah. got to be the hardest part mentally. Oh, I, I have a One picture of of. of I took it like over my head and I had literally the entire, my entire lower back and the top of my butt was just completely red, almost to the bleeding point from rubbing against my pack for two or three days in a row in the rain. And, oh, geez. I mean, talk about a stinger. Woof. That was pretty bad. Dang. So, so man, I'd tell you this. We, I don't know if you know this, but I, I did a cross-country bike ride yeah. last summer. It was a guided trip, though. Oh, wait. Um, so this is this... This was this was with who I work for, Athletic oh, Bruin. Okay, they they opened. We have a brewery in Connecticut. Yeah, and they wanted to open up one, in, or they opened up one in San Diego. So it was literally on the each ocean. Yeah, East Coast and West Coast, and we were just brainstorming like, how do we celebrate this in the Athletic Bruin way? And uh, the the idea came around, and obviously I wanted to be like, let's let's just bike, let's bike from one to the other. But one nice. of the other guys brought it up, and they were like, "Is that possible?" And I'm like, "Heck yeah, that's possible. We can totally do that." So let me tell you about a, the time <laughs> I rode from Alaska a, <laughs> to Florida. No man, it was a huge <laughs> team effort, and uh, but we met a guy in Denver. Gosh, his name was Jason, and he had just got done running across the U.S. I think he was 50. Yeah. And he, he might have not been quite that old, but he, he wasn't 20, 25. He right, was, he was right. older or he was, he was, um, and he's legally blind. Wow. And he ran 50 miles a day, every day, not a single day off. And we just randomly ran into him on yeah. this trip and his mom was helping him cause he was trying to run like 50 miles that day around this park, just around like this two mile loop. It's just, so she, we really would started talking to her, his mom, but she was the one that accompanied him the whole way. They just slept in their like SUV right. right in the back. Mom and son, she did everything for him. She got the food ready. Yeah, yeah. Got his like, you know, whatever, all the stuff ready and so he could run, figured out the route. And uh, she was his whole crew. And I think it took, you know, at 50 miles a day, what is that, like a couple right. months? I would think so, It's like yeah. 3,000 miles or so. Two months, and that's what they did, man. It Holy was, cow. Yeah, they just I, did it. That having that support would be absolutely crucial because I don't think you could really do it without that. I don't that. think you could run. You could walk. You could walk, yeah. And, and push you can a carry. cart. Yeah, We've right. had plenty of people that ultra walkers. Right. Angela uh, Maxwell, one of our guests, um, she just finished around the world walking six oh, or wow. seven years Holy to smokes. like 40 countries, just like around the equator across Australia, I'm pretty sure, all across US or, or Asia and Europe. And she just finished like last month. Really? Finished in Bend, Oregon, where she started. Oh, wow. Yeah. After walking across the US, she stopped in Denver, talked to my wife's classroom. It was awesome. Well, and just thinking about the experiences that she must have seen and, and been yeah. through in all those years, I mean, that's... That's like a... That's a chapter of your life, you know? Oh, yeah, like yeah. Six, six years, I think it was. Well, and you know, it's interesting you said that because I, I had thought about that too. The amount of time that I've spent on the ocean by myself is, at this point, probably chalks up to about 2%, 2%. of my life if I live to be 100. Yeah. And it's sort of like, wow, that's that's a good portion right yeah, there. That is. <laughs> yeah, 2%. I better like what I'm doing. <laughs> right, yeah. No, that's really cool. Um. You said something on the last interview, which I'm going to, in the intro of this one, I'm going to tell folks, like, go and listen to the first one, right. then listen to this one, 
and you can kind of get the backstory. I think it was you that shared a, a, a quote like, the closest people to you sometimes were the astronauts oh, in the space station. Yeah, Did you yeah. say that? Yeah. That was yeah. one of the most profound it, things I'd ever heard. It's I, a I, thinker. You, know? it's you start picturing that in your head. And, and to tell you the truth, I mean, a lot of the time I was out there, it was like that. It's just in the Southern Ocean, it's, you're probably uh, 10 or 20 times farther or closer to those guys than you are to anybody else. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Because I, I think the space station is about 200-something miles up. Yeah, yeah. And you don't so, think about that, but it's not that high. It's not that far away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But down there, oof, especially in the Pacific, when you when you get close to Point Nemo, you have about 1,600 miles is the radius of empty ocean. It's the biggest open expanse on the planet. And I think that equates to about 8.8 million square miles. No way. Empty sea. Something that I've been saying a lot, or someone told me and been realizing and thinking about a lot, is the, the ocean is the world's greatest wilderness. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't get talked about. You know, it's like, oh, the mountains of whatever or you know, Siberia or somewhere in Alaska or Northern Canada. It's like, yeah, those places are remote, but the ocean oh, is yeah. really where, you, like, it's not even an option to live out there unless you're, you know, on a boat like you, but even still, it's so contained. Oh, you're yeah. not going to homestead the well, ocean. And yeah. I mean, there, I, you can't, you can't be out there without some sort of vessel Right. It's not like you can just be like, I'm going to go swim around the world right. real quick. Right. It just exactly. doesn't. It, you can't do that. You can't, as a human, you can't live. It's a it's a very hostile environment. It's crazy, man. To try and live. Yeah. But I, I think you can fit all of the land masses on, on the planet in the Pacific Ocean with room to spare. And that's just the Pacific. You still have the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic mm, all and all that. So. Gosh. So, it's well, massive. So, uh. I'm not totally clear on what this last trip was. <laughs> the, and the debacle. I remember following along and I believe it was your mom that was posting updates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had I, I sort of upped to the game a little bit as far as the social media stuff yeah. went. Just you know, sort of learning from from the first trip and uh and I we were also raising money for the MS society as well. So I was just trying to to be a little more proactive with that, but it was still sending stuff back to my mom and then that would get posted on Facebook and Twitter and all that sort of stuff. And so the, the updates were going, but yeah, it, uh, it didn't go according to plan. What was the plan? <laughs> so the plan was to leave from Maine and go north through the Northwest Passage. And then, which you can only really do during the month of August. That's the, that's the only time the ice melts enough for a boat to get through. And then you go down the Pacific Ocean uh, around Cape Horn, and I was either going to turn north and just circumnavigate the Americas, which in it by itself is is pretty insane. But if things were going well, the boat was good, uh, the food was holding out, then I was going to go around Antarctica and complete the figure eight, which is uh, like 45,000 miles or something like that. Only only one person has, has sailed that route, a guy by the name of Randall Reeves. He stopped uh, a handful of times going through the passage, but he's done he's done that whole route, and he's the only person. So I was, I guess, attempting to do that without stopping. So oh my god, that was the game plan at least. So uh, things didn't turn out all that well because it's it's sort of a uh, how do I describe this? The Northwest Passage is more like a speed bump than anything because. You can only go through it at a certain time. But what I was worried about is that the Canadians are starting to regulate that waterway a lot more. And even though it's a uh, a natural passage and, you know, technically under maritime law, you can pass through as long as you don't stop. But it's it's since it's such a sensitive area and with all the COVID stuff going on, they at first gave me permission to go ahead. And then 21 days into the trip, they told me I couldn't go anymore. So how did they tell you? What was uh, I was, I had to, on this trip, I had to be a little more high tech, uh, to be able to receive updated ice charts as the ice moves around. So 
I had an email address that I could download really short email blasts with. And I had given them that before I left because to go through there, one of the requirements was to check in with their sort of search and rescue guys twice a day so that they knew exactly where I was. Because it's pretty common. You get stuck in the ice and then either a, an icebreaker has to come through or if, you're, if your boat gets cracked up, then they'll send a helicopter out there. That was sort of their thinking was, you know, if, if things went really bad with the pandemic that they might not have search and rescue available. I don't think it was, you know, they knew my intention was to not stop. And I don't think they were worried about me actually bringing the virus up there. Right, right. But it was more of they just don't want to have to deal with some idiot who decided he wanted to go through the Northwest Passage yeah. during all this. But it was it was only because when they initially said, yeah, if you can fulfill these requirements, we strongly think you shouldn't do this, but you can go ahead. And I, from that point, it was full throttle preparations, buying everything. And cause I didn't have a ton of time, but the boat was pretty much ready. I just needed to provision it and, and get a few things tied up. But so for 21 days, I was going to be a Arctic adventure. And I was working my way up. I, I got just within a few miles of 60 degrees north, um, you know, halfway in between uh, the Labrador coast and Greenland. And, uh, and that was when I found out. And there was bad weather up there. I mean, it's, it was miserable those, those first few weeks, just fog. And the only really cool thing was the animal life was pretty amazing. I mean, there were dolphins porpoises whales and it was constant you know when i go out in the atlantic you might see that stuff every couple of days up there it was it was every few hours something else was popping out of the sea to come and check me out so that was pretty cool was it is it a calmer ocean up there uh it, it can be i mean i was finding yeah foggy conditions and light to no wind uh, but then the systems that sort of come down from canada they hit you know, the U S and then as they come off the U S they turn into these, these storm systems and go into the North Atlantic. So those were rolling through, but they were, they were pretty much South of me. I had to go through iceberg alley, which is basically all these icebergs are coming off the Labrador coast and they get grabbed by the current and then they go out into the North Atlantic. So you got to kind of go through there and, and that's, it's a bit worrisome. They track most of the big bergs, but the small little chunks and stuff, those are sort of all over the place. And I can still do some, some Oh, if damage. I hit one of those, it'd sink my boat. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my and here's the thing me? is you think, okay, well, I won't be able to see them at night, but I'll be able to see them during the day. But then when you're chalked in by fog, and I'm talking, you know, 100 feet, you might be able to see. So even during the day, I wouldn't be able to see a white cube come out of a white backdrop. I mean... It's like, you know, when you go skiing, you get snow blind sometimes when the dull light, it's the same way out there. And you just have to like put it out of your head and just be like, well, all right, if I hit one, I hit one. But because you can't sit on deck and just stare forward all the time. It's impossible. So, so just, what do you what do you do? Just take your chances? Yeah, it's, it's a gamble. I, you know, the the reports of where the ice was uh, were coming in. And I knew if I stayed far enough to the east, I was avoiding most of the big bergs. So probably avoiding most of the small stuff. And so you just you just try and stay as far clear. But like, you know, an iceberg that came off that coast was probably what what did in the Titanic and all that, because they some of the big ones last for a long time. Oh, they yeah. Just get swept right out there. So so that was pretty scary. I went through this nuts electrical storm that knocked out a bunch of my electrical equipment. I think like a week into the trip. So I was already on my backup. Did of, you get, did you get struck by lightning? Is that I what don't, happens? I, it was strange. You know, I, it, it's a, it hit the a, water. How does that work? I don't, I don't know exactly what happened. The, there were bolts hitting the water. Uh, I can't really say exactly how far away they were, but it was nerve wracking because I had so much fuel on board. I was like fully loaded. This was one week into the trip. And one of the things with the Northwest Passage is there's really no wind up there, so you have to motor. And so I needed, I was carrying, I think somewhere around 1,200 gallons of diesel fuel, and Jeez. the majority of which was, or not, not 1,200 gallons, I'm sorry. Um, what did I have? I had 
250 gallons, I think. Um, and most of it was in this big bladder about the size of this table. So maybe, uh, the size of a normal table. And, uh, <laughs> that's down below underneath my bunk. And then in the back of the boat, in the lazarette, there's four big tanks of propane. And I'm in this lightning storm wondering, should I be down below next to the 180 gallons of diesel fuel in that tank? Or should I be up here next to all the wires? Like it was, it was crazy. And in the end, after about two or three days, I watched my VHF radio die, and then uh, my little Garmin inReach died, and then the AIS, which indicates where other boats are around me, that died as well. And so I had to replace all that stuff. And I was only a week into the trip, and I'm thinking to myself, geez, this is not going how I wanted so it to. So were, those were fried. Like yeah, you, they, they oh all just God. started malfunctioning. So I, I figure, <laughs> I, I the only thing I can figure is that the lightning was close enough that it affected everything. And maybe I didn't get, I, I don't think I actually got a direct hit, but maybe there was one that was close enough. Yeah. I'm sure there's a scientist out there right now. That's like, Oh my gosh, I know exactly what happened. Right. Right. We just don't know. <laughs> I, I, that's crazy to me, man. That is uh did, did you get to see how big some of these icebergs were like on a clear day? Never, never, never saw a single one. And no I, way. Who knows? I could have sailed right past them and not even noticed. You didn't um, get to see any ice? No, not a single bit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was kind of crazy. And I, I kind of wanted to, when I, when I had to do the U-turn and start going south, um, I had the choice, you know, of trying to get back to Maine and just, you know, sort of forget it all ever happened or go and, you know, sort of start a new adventure. And the problem with going back to Maine was that there were already hurricanes in the Atlantic and the typical track, if they develop off of Africa as they cruise the Caribbean and then they come up the East Coast. Yep, yep. I think there were two named storms out there at that time. So I kind of was sort of cut off from going back to Maine. Plus, all the wind is coming from there, so it would have just been an upwind slog. And I decided, well, I'll go across. And I went went across the Atlantic um, over towards the Azores and then kept going south. Because there was part of me that figured, you know, I've got this boat. It's all filled with food and fuel, and I have everything I need. You know, maybe I can salvage something and do another big trip. So you just took a... A right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I went basically e went east. As soon as I read the or email southeast. that said I was no longer allowed to go through. And I, I think they put a caveat on there where they said, you know, you can't enter until October 31st. And by October 31st, the Northwest Passage is frozen over again. Right. So it was kind of like, well, either they don't know what they're talking about or, yeah, they just don't care. Um, Intentional. Like, <laughs> a little, hey, yeah. you can go through there to... But you can walk across. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it just did that U-turn and, uh, I just, yeah, I mean, I was already out there, so it's, it's, it's hard to, uh, sort of, I don't know, figure out what you want to do. Cause it's nothing is immediate because you're so isolated. It's not like you could be like, ah, well, I don't want to do this anymore. Come pick me up. It's just, that's just not happening. So you have to, I was sort of stuck between, a stop sign and the possibility of doing something else. So I, I decided to just keep going and, and really I would say trying to get into a safer position from the hurricanes was probably the biggest, the biggest uh, concern I had because I, I didn't know it was going to be like one of the most active hurricane seasons uh, on record, but it uh the idea of of just being in the atlantic and getting pummeled by a serious hurricane is that's terrifying i mean i've never been in a storm like that and i don't ever want to be but jeez to be in the atlantic at that time you know it's uh you're really playing with fire so so as you head further east over to the azores and over to you know europe and stuff then then you're sort of out of that zone where you know, the, the storm is happening for, down in Africa, down like they, which yeah, part of Africa? Well, they'll develop by the Cape Verde Islands, which okay. is off the coast of um, uh, like Liberia and all those those areas on the western coast. And then they'll they'll build as they go across the Atlantic towards the Caribbean. And then eventually they turn north. And typically go right up our coastline, right and, up, uh, right through this, right by this. Yeah, house. <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah. Have you have you ever had to deal? Oh, been man. down here with hurricanes? Yeah, well, I grew up here. Oh, okay. Um, uh, 
my whole life. Yeah. And oh, uh, so you've seen my wife too. So yeah, we had plenty of which one was the worst, Andrew or Hugo? No, or? there was one. Sorry, there was one year. I think two thousand four. In our little town in Central Florida, we had three pretty major storms, big ones, big ones like Category three and four. They come out of the Gulf. Yeah, or? they come out of the Gulf. Yeah. No, no, they, then they come from the Atlantic, but they three crossed our town. We went through three different eyes. Oh, jeez! In in a month, month and a half, wow. same, all the same season. Yeah. And, uh, our, it was crazy, man. It was, it was, we lived on a big piece of property and lost dozens and dozens of like hundred year old oak trees. Right. I had a limb through my bedroom, cars getting turned over. It was, th- you know, one right after the other. We didn't have power for like all told like a month, a oh, month really? or something. Yeah. So it was, we filled it. We had a, we had a swimming pool that we were getting water out of. We were killing animals to eat them it was it was crazy wow it wasn't that crazy like it was but it was spaced out enough where it wasn't a month straight of losing power right right somebody here oh he's the uh the pool dude the pool guy i don't think he'll be making no no problem he's probably like what the heck is going on in here (laughs) (laughs) dude's having a conversation yeah right (laughs) we're just podcasting (laughs) Let, let, let me ask you this all right this is uh this is your brother and sister-in-law's house. Yep. Well, you know, this is by all accounts, quote, you know what I mean by this, normal life. Normal. What, are your, normal. what do the people around you think about the way you live and the, what you choose to do with your life? Uh, well, honestly, I, I, I typically get two different reactions. One reaction is that people are, are just amazed and they sort of wish they did more things like that. Maybe not to the degree that I do them, but um, wish they had time to experience some of these things. Um, rather than just doing their sort of nine to five regular quote unquote regular life. Um, and then other people are just like, you're absolutely crazy. Why would you want to even do any of that stuff? It sounds miserable. I've had people read the book and say like, why would you ever want to do something like that again? That's, that sounds just awful. And you know, I, I don't know. I, and I think that that was one of the topics I sort of wanted to talk to you about because you, you sort of know You've talked to enough people that have done crazy things and you've done enough. I've of done them. a little to know uh, like those bigger, you know, like those bigger themes and yeah. talk to enough people like you to really understand why. Well, that's why the we question. It's, yeah. it's one word. Why? Why? Why yeah. do? And I, you know, I think about that a lot because I, I get I get that question so much that I it's hard to come up with a good explanation. I mean. What did what did uh, Edmund Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary, what did he say? Because it's there. Yeah. Why he yeah. climbed Everest? That's a, fa- that's a that's a famous reason. Why did I say around the there. world? Because it's there. <laughs> it's yeah. There. See, I can't pull that card. <laughs> Sorry, take it. Yeah, it's already Sorry, take it. But I know. I don't know. I you know. I I think some of the stuff for me, um, and I'd ask you this, but just just being out in nature for extended periods of time is attractive to me. I, I think I change after two, three, four days of not being indoors at all, having to, you know, if it's hot outside, I'm hot. If it's cold outside, I'm cold. There's no, there's no regulating any of it. You sort of have to go with the flow. And there's something in that. I think that, that is really appealing for me. I've always enjoyed that. And it, it's to my own detriment because, you know, there's a lot of times I'm just sitting there in the pouring rain <laughs> just thinking to myself, man, this is really, this really sucks. This is fun. <laughs> this is the way I choose. Man, I tell you what, what's crazy is, is you, you get to, I, it's, I've never heard anyone else say that part. It takes like three or four days. I, oh, I, yeah. it, it definitely, ex- you feel that. So it's like, you know, a weekend, you can tap into it to a degree, but it, yeah. when it's a week or two plus, you really start to feel like uh like instincts start taking over and you oh, get yeah. to feel like primal almost and you know there's a lot of technical stuff you got to do with the boat and logistically and there's technology out there that you got to to make it possible but it is this survival is always in the front of mind oh, and yeah. it's like yeah. it's 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 cleansing man it's like you, it's like you unzip your civilized self and walk out of that suit and now you're the real drill yeah, like yeah, out exactly. there. You know what I'm saying? A it, more it's, authentic, organic person yeah. than, and you know, I, I find more and more, um, 
in the last few trips that I've done, even shorter ones where I'm just sailing from up here to Maine or something like that, which takes two weeks or so, uh, after a couple of days of not being inundated by, you know, telephone screens and, and computers and all that stuff, because there's just such a overwhelming injection of imagery and, and sound bites and things like that, that once that's cut off, at first you sort of feel like, well, what, this is so boring out here in the trees and with the sky. And then you sort of get used to that that low level of input. And I think that's when you stop getting distracted by all that other stuff, which is usually just somebody trying to sell you something. Totally. That's all it is. And, and then all of a sudden you, you start to start thinking about life and you start thinking about, you know, what's around you and your environment and all that. And that, you know, at the end of the day, at least in my own opinion, that's, that's far more fulfilling than, than, yeah. Endlessly scrolling. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Dude, just like, it, ding. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. This is the probably the most normal we've ever lived. My wife and I. It's it, you know it's a house. It's in a you know a neighborhood. I feel like so much of our energy, our money, and our time are spent fighting nature. Just yeah. Cause, uh, Trying to tame it. <laughs> yeah. Just because it is. It's like well you know we gotta we gotta mow our grass you know. Well, shoot, we don't have grass. Like, well, we had to grow some. It's just dirt patches out there, and then it's it, it's endless because it's you kind of want to. But you don't really. I don't. I personally don't really want to do all these things all the time. But it's like, well, you got to keep the house cool because you can't let it get swampy. Mold starts growing. You know what I mean? It's like you have to yeah. do it. Once you get these things, you kind of there's a certain level of maintenance that's just required right, to right. keep it from costing you more in the long run. But even then, just the maintenance is just like we spend so much time. Versus like in a tent, for instance, on a bike trip somewhere, you're just yeah. kind of, you, you put up the tent. There's not a whole lot you can do about you the cold or the heat. You check the, you know, the sleeping bag for spiders. It's yeah. just like, it's minimal <laughs> about it. Yeah, it's yeah. like just just clear survival. It's not all it's not all the layers on top of it. But the boat, being out on the sailboat, it feels like there is a lot to keep up with. Well, definitely. Also, be, because you're using it for your your mode of transportation. Yeah, you know, you can go out. There was a guy a year or two ago who who floated across the Atlantic in a barrel. You know, pretty high tech one, but he he had no sails. He's a French guy. And, what did he uh, do? Just he just hooked into the current and it took him down. I, I can't remember where he left from. Maybe the Canaries or something like that. <laughs> Um, you can definitely, I got to write this now. That's crazy. (laughs) But I think it took him, uh, maybe like 80 something days. I, you'd have to check it out, but, uh, and he made it to the Caribbean and basically he was just bobbing and you can do that. And, and then, yeah, things obviously are way more simple, but (laughs) how did he eat? How did he, he just packed this thing. I I'm sure the barrel was again, as big as this table. Um, so you know, like a, it's got to had to be like a car or something. It, like, it's something like that, yeah. But it, he just it was, floated out there. He just floated, sort of like the Contiki tour, you know, that wow. that uh, balsa wood raft or whatever they yeah. made. And that, I mean, I think they had a sail on that one. So this goes just straight up with the Floating. current. And, and, uh, and there's not a lot to run into. No, no, you're more concerned about getting run over out there. I mean. You know the big the big ships and all that sort of stuff. They're not going to be able to see it, but you can again. You can have AIS, the automatic identification system, and that's sending your your position out, and the ships will see that if they're paying attention. So you're like, "There's a boat over there. I don't, I don't see. Say, it. I don't see I one. See, Is this a glitch? I see a fridge. Yeah, right out there. <laughs> well, dude, let's uh, let me ask you about that uh, <clears throat> circumnavigation again. Not the circumnavigation, but the figure eight around the Northwest Passage and. Yeah antarctica what made you not want to just turn around and go the other way do it backwards would, well would that have been yeah possible I, I and actually i got a, a message from randall reeves about that and he said you know hey you know you, you could probably do it backwards and the only problem i had with that one i wasn't sure i i didn't want to go and do this trip and tr- sort of hinge it on the fact that maybe they would let me go through at the end you know, in a year from now, so to speak. Um, the other thing was that fuel bladder. So the big one that I had, you know, 170 gallons in, that was uh, like an actual bladder instead of like a, 
a stainless steel fuel tank. And I was worried about that thing popping or any, cause if that, if, if it had ruptured, I'd literally have so much fuel floating around in my boat. I, I had no plan to be able to deal with that besides pumping it overboard, which I definitely did not want to have to do. And, and it's sort of the reason I went ahead with that one, it was cost effective, but two, I figured I was going to be in the Northwest passage within a month of leaving. And I would have burnt through all of that fuel by the time I got through. So I was like, oh, okay, so I'll do that, get rid of the fuel, get back to my normal weight on the boat, and then sail around the world after that. And doing it the other way, I mean, there's just no way that fuel bladder would have stood the test of time. And I, yeah, I worried about it constantly when I was in bad weather, because I, I got hit by a couple little systems as I was trying to get south. And, you know, the boat's lurching up and down and I'm looking at this bladder because I could just see one side of it coming out from the bunk. And this whole thing's like moving. And all I could think of is the wrong bit of friction or like maybe a loose screw or something gets underneath it. Because if it starts leaking, I mean, I was in trouble. I don't it would have been really bad. That was sort of my worst nightmare. And I would I'd pull the whole structure apart and check it. And, you know, unfortunately, I had spilled a little bit when I was filling it up. So, and diesel just is, it's sort of an oily fuel. So I was always finding more of it and it's pink. So it has this dye in it. And so I'd see like the boat would heel over on one way and I wouldn't see anything. And then like a couple days later, I'd heel over on the other way. And then all of a sudden there'd be a little pool and I'm like, Oh no, it's leaking. Oh Oh, no, here we go. So it was, it was this total, you know, would you try to solve that if you did it again? Um, yeah, I, you know, use barrels or something. I don't know. I, yeah. See the, the problem was is space because having it be sort of a, a pliable, you know, bladder made it fit into that spot really well. And I built the bunk over the top of it. So it was pretty well contained. I mean, had I gotten in a bad storm and the boat got flipped over, there's, you know, it just weighs too much. I think it weighed about 1200 pounds. So it's, it's, it's risky. And you know, if I had a huge budget, yeah, you could probably build a little tank in there and, and affix it basically to the boat. But um, I don't know. I, you know, one of the things I worry about is that now Canada is probably going to and, and rightfully so, because that passage is in their territory. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to start regulating it like really seriously, trying to make sure it used to be like the Wild West. You could just go up there and you'd Sometimes you you'd check in and be like, hey, I'm here, I'm going through, and they sort of keep an eye on you. But it was sort of like, whoever wants to go, go for it. Now, I think it's going to be massive amounts of equipment that you need, permitting, all that stuff. You know, I think it's I think the the days of just heading up on a big adventure up there are, are pretty much over. You've got to you've really got to be able to show that you've got the right boat, the right number of people, all that sort of stuff to go through there. And and in in a lot of ways. I guess I agree with it just because it is such a sensitive, um, natural area. The last thing you need is some idiot with 250 gallons of diesel going up there. <laughs> and then all of a sudden Leak. his thing explodes and he's going to pump it all overboard. It's yeah. like, wow. You know, or he goes, miss, you know, worst case scenario, just you don't know. And you got it. You got to go check it out, spend money on rescue crews and yeah guess, yeah you know well and, and i had to i had to show them um an insurance policy that that had like a million dollar coverage for search and rescue and so there were already a couple of things that i had to have just to be able to be allowed up there but i have a feeling yeah in, in the future i think they're gonna they're not gonna open it this year from what i'm told um so i you know i don't know but it's all right it, i'd actually almost Rather have it that way because then I would know I would never attempt that one again. I could just move on. You know, it's a clean break. <laughs> well, there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> exactly. There's nothing I yeah. can do about it. They're not letting us Yahoos go up there anymore. So that's fine. Oh, and, my gosh. You know, I, but I'll tell you, I, to have just for the beginning, to have the trip sort of end that way, I guess there's it could have been way worse. You know, obviously I could have like sank or I could have just, mentally been like no i'm too afraid i can't do this and made the decision myself and and that's one of my biggest fears always going into any type of adventure is 
like knowing that there is that possibility where I might not be up to the task. And so to actually just be told by somebody else that I, I can't do it anymore, it was, I don't want to say like a get out of jail free card, but makes it, it easier. It made process. it a little easier. Yeah. But I, I didn't even go and look back and I still haven't to this day to find out what the ice conditions were. Cause some years you can go up there, you can have all the prep in the world, but the ice doesn't open up. Right. And you just doesn't matter around. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just don't, I don't even want to know. What does it look like when the ice isn't opened up? I mean, does it, does it just slowly start getting more and more ice or is it a wall? Do you know? Yeah. It's, it's basically you get pack ice. There's, there's like surface ice that sort of floats around. And when the wind blows, all of a sudden it'll move all of it and just jam up one section. And then there's older ice, which is super thick, which isn't going anywhere. And what's happening now, uh, from what I'm told, is that basically you'll get this situation where the ice will, you'll have a warm year and it'll undercut a bunch and you'll have a year where it's kind of easier to get through. But so much of the undercutting has happened the next year, a big chunk of it falls off. And even though it's hotter than it's ever been, it all that loose ice jams the Northwest Passage up. So typically what they say now is that you have, I think, two bad years and then one good year or no, it's something like that. They say it comes in twos at this point where you get really warm temperatures. It's wide open. But then all of a sudden, it's it's like the amount of floating ice builds up to a point where it lets go and then all of a sudden jams everything up. Because a lot of those passages in there, you know, it's an archipelago. So there's some places where, you know, there's land right over there, there's land right over there. And all this ice is getting chalked up and stuck in places and all that. I mean, my my biggest fear besides being caught in moving ice and basically crushed was to be in that situation where there's a lot of floating ice and all of a sudden a big gale comes in and now you're in floating ice in 20 foot waves. I mean, that would be terrifying. And I I think those are the conditions that you can find uh, way up in the Labrador Sea, you know, way north near Greenland. And then also once you get on the other side in the Beaufort Sea, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but above Alaska. And I mean, just thinking about, you know, a wave, it's scary enough to think about a crashing wave hitting the boat. But if you're putting two ton blocks of ice inside of that wave, that's like, that's a hellish nightmare. I don't ever. It's like artillery (laughs) hitting the boat. And there's just no way, there's no way you can survive that in a small fiberglass boat. What would you do? But I mean, that's that's one where you just try and make peace with things. I mean, they, there's there's just no way to survive that sort of stuff. So obviously, I mean, if if you knew it was coming, you would try and position yourself in a place where you would uh, because there's a lot of coves and things like that that you can sort of duck into. So you try and do that. But, you know, that ice is sort of a strange thing, the way it moves and it's affected by a lot of stuff and, and the power of it. I mean, if you have. 50 miles of ice all moving in one direction nothing literally will stop it i mean it'll if it starts piling up over onto the land mass it'll start to like scrape it away you know it's like a mini glacier so yeah wow it's a gnarly place you know i the more i think about it the less i think i would ever want to do that (laughs) how do you feel if you wouldn't have been turned around by the government do you feel like i would have made it Oh, or not made it. That's a, that. There's a lot ahead, but did you feel like you on your own would have continued? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How yeah, were yeah. you feeling? I was feeling point? good. Okay. I mean, I was I was definitely pretty down about the weather as far as just being in fog, never ending fog. Um, it just it, it wears on you psychologically, or at least it does to me. Where you just don't feel very good. Everything's because your, your world is just so small at that point. You just, yeah, Yeah. you want to see the sun, you want to see the stars. But one of the cool things uh, that was actually bringing my spirits up was as I got further North, you know, it would start to get dark at maybe 10 o'clock at night. But by about two 30 in the morning, the sun was, or it was at least becoming light again. So I was getting closer to that 24 hours of sunlight and I was really excited about seeing that. I've, I've always wanted to experience it. And it, it was getting closer and closer. 
And I was just like, oh, this is going to be great. It's literally going to be light all day and all night. And unfortunately, I had to turn around before I got way up there to experience it. But And no no uh, chance to see like the northern, northern lights. Nah, yeah. One, well, and talking with Matt Rutherford, who was the first person to solo nonstop around the Americas. He did it in 2011, 2012. And uh, he said, the further north you get, the worse it gets. You know, the fog. Just because you've got all this this cold air, and then you've got the moisture coming off of the sea, and it just is a perfect cocktail for just thick, thick fog. Yeah. So. Jeez, man, unreal. It's like unreal. a different world up there. What so. What do you What were you looking forward to the most that you didn't get to see on that experience? What any place you had researched or part of the route that you really wanted to, uh, to get to see? I was well, I was I was definitely planning on as I headed further south in the Pacific. Uh, I wanted to do a flyby of Easter Island, and you know pick the right side where I could see the actual statues because they all face the water. Uh, I thought that would be pretty cool just to just to sort of sail past and envision myself on you know some tall ship back in like eighteen twenty, being like, "What is that? <laughs> I don't think we should stop there, guys." Yeah. But um, no, I, I was hoping to be able to see, actually see Cape Horn because um, I missed it on the first one. I passed it through the night. But mostly I, you know, I was really excited about getting past the Aleutian Islands into the Pacific Ocean after the Northwest Passage. And, and that would have only been, you know, three months into the trip. So the trip was going to be a year. And it would have been sort of like a brand new start because then I was all open ocean, basically in, in very familiar waters, so to speak. And I was looking forward to that, just being able to accomplish the Northwest Passage and then have this whole world to go get, get the hard part done. Yeah. What it yeah. Seemed like. And well, I, and I wouldn't say too much that it's it's the hard part because the Southern Ocean is a whole different beast, but. It was the most complicated part and the most questionable. I think that's the best way to put it. Because there was, you know, there's so many factors. The ICE, the government, the regulations, the pandemic, all that stuff were factoring into whether or not I'd get through that. And and the engine too. I mean, you know, when I go ocean sailing, if the engine dies, so be it. It's fine. I, I have no problem with that. In the Northwest Passage, if your engine dies, you're you're pretty much out of luck at that point you're rowing the boat yeah and my <laughs> boat weighs way too much to row <laughs> so you're not rowing the boat so not rowing that boat but Man. yeah i don't know it was it was pretty strange but um like i said it, it left me in this weird place of of this limbo stuck in the middle of the ocean and just trying to protect myself from the hurricanes and so you know, as I got further south, it, it kind of was nice because the weather got a lot better. And once I got to the Azores, things sort of calmed down. There's a big high pressure system called the Azores High. It just sits out there and it produces really calm wind, calm seas. And I had all this fuel that I wanted to sort of get rid of. So I was happy to motor. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was, it was beautiful. I had my stars at night and it was warm. But at the same time, I was just starting to deal with the fact that, you know, I'd spent every penny that I had. The trip was definitely not going to go according to plan. And I didn't know what to do at that point. So it became a very psychological game that I was playing. And I'm by myself, obviously. So you're just the, the gears were just turning and turning and I'd be going up and down one night. I'd be like, all right, I'm going around again. This is the plan. I got to do it. And then the next night I'd be like, oh my God, I just want to stop. Maybe I should just sail to, to the Azores and just stop there. But at the same time, there were so many regulations and so many countries that weren't letting people in. So that compounded the sort of mental problems i was having because all of a sudden i felt like wow i'm really stuck out here because nobody will even let me in their countries and what how are you fi finding what what is your way of finding out that that news uh, i was just there? being able to text people um okay. from my little garmin inreach yeah, yeah. so i could you know text buddies and stuff and they would check you know i i we were looking at um a marina in the cape verde islands off the coast of africa in case 
a big tropical wave, which is basically the beginning of a hurricane, came right off the coast. I could sort of duck in there and he couldn't he couldn't get a hold. He, he said it looked like I probably could have gone in there, uh, but the marinas were all closed up and there weren't really a lot of options. It would have been a fiasco for sure to try and pull in there. So can you just go? So driving around here, there's all these coves and there's the marinas, but then we'll see this like cove with 20 boats scattered around just kind of anchored yeah can you just go do that so like what, what are the rules with that well so internationally and i'm not by any means like a maritime lawyer or anything <laughs> right. but okay. under maritime law i do believe that if you are in trouble like your boat is sinking or you're, you're having medical issues or anything like that I, th- I believe you can just pull straight into any place and, and at least anchor um Normally, you would pull in and you would announce that you're coming in once you're a certain distance away, like three miles or something, and then you go check in through customs. You have to go through all that, and then you you get clearance to stay in the country. Um, but if you're sheltering from a storm or something like that, yeah, I mean, typically they'll they won't. If you just go and anchor somewhere, put up your little yellow flag that says quarantined, um, then you, you should be good to stay for at least a couple of days. I believe. Don't quote me on that, people. Right. I don't. I don't need anybody saying Jerome said I could. <laughs> yeah, Jerome. <laughs> but yeah. I've I've sailed through uh, territorial waters a lot, and I'm just passing by. But I know in the Caribbean, when other people cruise uh, and do the island chains, sometimes they will instead of actually checking into a country, they'll just they'll just anchor there for the night and then start sailing the next day. So. I know people that have done it, and it seems to be pretty much okay and acceptable. Wow. What is like a, you know, say you're out, say you on the adventure itself, on the circumnavigation, or just a normal day when you're crossing the Atlantic back to the Azores, what does a typical day look like from waking up in the morning to going to bed? Like, is is, is it usually kind of the similar things, or is it always something pretty different? Uh, it's It's... It gets very routine. I mean, in certain segments, yeah, because you there's certain things you have to do. You always have to do your boat checks in the mornings. You always have to do your navigation and your position at noon. And what's what's all, what is all that? What is boat check? Uh, that's just basically taking a look around the equipment. Um, you know, like at the end of the day when you get off the bike, or or sorry, the next morning when you're about to do a hundred miles, you know, you check over. The brakes and things like that and the chain, yeah, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, maybe a little squirt of WD forty, maybe. I'm not gonna sink <laughs> sink into the ocean. So right, I, no, I'd be true. like, oh, I got a flat. I'll yeah. Well, so basically, I just look at you know looking for any signs of something chafing through, wearing through. Um, typically, on a boat, your ears are gonna come in handy more than anything because you're gonna hear sounds change like boats get into this rhythm and everything sounds the same and everything moves the same and you sort of it's like a car yeah it's all good but then all of a sudden you start hearing like tink 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 and you got to find out what that is because something has gone wrong something has changed and so i look at all the wires i look at the sails that are up um you get a real sense at least on my boat um, that the, that everything's pretty much okay. I've, I've made it a point to make my boat as simple as possible, Mm. uh, foregoing all the fancy stuff. And you look at a sailboat for someone that doesn't know what they're doing. I I go to, there's a Marina right next to our house. Mm -hmm. We go down there all the time just to walk up and down the docks. They're beautiful, aren't they? They're beautiful, but it's also, it's, it's like looking at the inside of a computer to uh, me where right, I'm like, right. or like the inside of an electrical panel or something or something I don't understand. And I'm like, yeah, look at all these pulleys and ropes and it's just so much. It's, is it really that? No, intense? It, it's not that bad. I, I, I would definitely think I could, I could teach you if, if we spent one day on a boat, I feel like you'd feel pretty comfortable not only knowing what you're looking at, but also how it works and then also being able to sail it. That's all. No way. Uh, it would just take one day. One day yeah. to sail? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I taught sailing for decades, so there's, uh, you know. I've never sailed. 
Oh man! Well, hey, you know what? If uh, if I end up scooting down here again before um, I head up to Maine, hey, let me know. We can go man. rent. Awesome. There are places they rent boats. Little, yeah, uh, yeah, no, they rent right down footers. by our house. People, it, but it's crazy. You look at all these boats, and after talking to you specifically, we've had other sailors on the show, but you, you, talking with you, I'm looking at these boats and talking to my wife and my son, and I'm like, you can just. These these can take you anywhere. Anywhere. That's I mean, just like yeah. a car can or a bike can, but it like these on the water, it's just blows my mind. These people could just go out to that ocean and do anything, you know? Well, it's that ultimate like romantic dream of yeah, sail off into the sunset yeah. to some tropical paradise. And it's awesome. true. That's you know, you have to go through quite a bit to get there, but you're gonna get there. It's uh it's a great feeling. And I I love it. I thought for sure when I got back I was going to have to sell the boat because I was dead broke. And I was just like, oh, no, what am I going to yeah. do? Uh, but luckily, I've been able to uh, put together enough just to, to be able to maintain it. So I don't know what will happen in the future, but um, I didn't. I definitely didn't want to because that boat has become sort of part of me. But it's also it's my home and it's sort of like in some ways it's my escape pod. Like if I ever... Just say, you know what? I need to just disappear for a couple of months. I could easily set sail tomorrow and just head out into the Atlantic and, you know, go to go and sort of not drift around, but sail comfortably, you know, out in the middle of the ocean for a while. It's unbelievable uh, ability to just say you can do that. Disappear into the biggest expanses on the planet. (laughs) It's terrifying, man. It's like, (laughs) but, you know, and it's funny because you say that and, and with, when you have a couple of adventures sitting down, it's always funny because some things like literally riding a bicycle on the edge of a, a road that terrifies me. I think of that street out there is more dangerous than any ocean ever could be. Yeah. At least statistically, you know, your right, chances right, of some yeah. idiot plowing India and you do that. Yeah. How long is that trip from Alaska? Is that 5,000 miles? Yeah, that was 5,300. And that's all on roads. Mostly, yeah. There was a couple dirt sections, but and mostly Did you rows. ever get hit by a car? Uh, no. Ended up doing five other cross-country rides. And you've um, never been hit? This summer, I got hit. Oh, do tell. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventure sports podcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.